Hello, everybody. Chief of Charge, Ryan Landrum here at the U.S. Border Patrol Academy, coming to you with another What's Important Now podcast. So I've been in command here at the U.S. Border Patrol Academy for about 14 months, and there are numbers of things that are worth talking about. But I'd like to take a little time to address some things that maybe keep me up at night. Um, specifically, I'd like to today to talk to you about the long-term staffing health of the U.S. Border Patrol. We spent a lot of time over the last 14 months addressing attrition at the U.S. Border Patrol Academy where an agent candidate comes in, they go through our program and either successfully graduate or do not. Um, we're trying to drive the, the number of those folks who do not graduate as Border Patrol agents down to as low as possible while at the same time protecting the standards that we enjoy here at the U.S. Border Patrol Academy. As the Chief of the Academy though, and I've said this before, my command is kind of predicated on three things, leader engagement, readiness, and modernization. So as the chief, I spend a lot of time engaging with not only the staff that works here at the academy, but also the trainees that come through the doors. And inevitably, each trainee that I talk to, I ask them, why are you a Border Patrol agent? Why did you sign up? Maybe you're from Detroit or Illinois or California. What brought you to the US Border Patrol? And surprisingly, many responses, overwhelmingly, the number of responses, always comes back to one thing. And that is, Chief, I just wanted to be a special operator with the U.S. Border Patrol's Special Operations Group in El Paso, Texas. I found that a little surprising, but in hindsight, I probably shouldn't have. We have a tremendous Special Operations Group. And today, I'd like to focus on speaking with a career operator, not only for the U.S. Border Patrol, but also in the U.S. military. Um, frankly, one of our most decorated special operators and let you tell him, tell you his perspective of why he's a Border Patrol agent and what it means to be a special operator. So today I'd like to introduce you to Acting Patrol Agent in Charge for the National BORTAC team, Chris Voss. Thank you, Chief. Thanks for having me. Welcome to the What's Important Now podcast. It's an honor. I could not be more excited about this opportunity. Um, to say that that you are one of our best is probably an understatement. That is no slight on any other operator or board patrol agent in the field, but uh, we have some folks that clearly rise to the top. And, and uh, one of the things that really sets you apart for me is your humility. Um, so you've done a lot of very interesting things over your lifetime, and uh, you might not know it if you uh, didn't know who you are and what you're about. But I'd like to talk a little bit about that today, if you don't mind. Absolutely true. Excellent. Yep. So I want to take us back to the early 2000s, 2000 or so. Um, sound, sounds like maybe you uh, had an itch for the military or didn't. Tell me about that. Yeah, so initially I grew up around the military. Uh, my grandfather's, both my grandfather's in World War II. Uh, my dad was in Vietnam. So it was always a theme around the family. But a uh, little rebellious as an adolescent, and uh, I, I was always like, I'm not going in. You know, I, didn't, I just pushed it off. But um, I competed in Olympic Taekwondo. And at some point I had the opportunity to train at the Olympic Training Center. And I was pushing to uh, try to qualify for the 2000 Olympic Games. And uh, while I was at the Olympic Training Center, I saw these uh, fellow athletes and we were changing out and these guys were getting into BDUs at the time. And I'm like, hey, what's that about? You know, and they're like, no, we're in the military. We're WCAP, which is World Class Athlete Program of the Military. It's all branches. Mm -hmm. They're national champions, elite, elite athletes. And so I was like, man, that's pretty interesting. 
And so uh, I, I had a sprint two years trying to get to the uh, the Olympics for the 2000 games and didn't pan out the way I expected. And so kind of as a fallback, I thought I can continue this, gain some experience and uh, serve my country. So uh, that's the catalyst that basically uh, set me on that path to go in the U.S. Army. Yeah, so U.S. Army, and it sounds like you uh, decided uh, Army was for you, but also maybe a little specialized uh, opportunity in the Army with the Rangers. Absolutely, Chief. So I was in the Army from uh, 2000 into 2004. Uh, I went in under an Option 40 contract, mm -hmm. which is otherwise known as a Ranger contract. And what that contract entailed was it gave you uh, uh, a contract that ultimately gave you the opportunity to go to U.S. Army Airborne Course, mm -hmm. which is basic parachuting, and uh, Ranger Indoctrination Program, or RIP, which was the three-week selection process that got you into the 75th Ranger Regiment, or the Special Operations Rangers. Mm -hmm. So uh, specifically in that contract, though, there's a blurb that says, if you fail any part of that little pipeline, uh, you'll become what is called a worldwide, and you can be stationed anywhere at the needs of the Army. Yeah. And so I, I imagine the Army loved handing those out because more likely than not, they would be able to place you anywhere as an 11 Bravo. Yeah. 11 Bravo is an, uh, an assigned infantryman. Yeah. No one, before you go into basic, where you're going, I was an unassigned infantryman contingent on passing both Airborne Corps and RIP, or Ranger Indoctrination uh, Program. Yeah. So uh, realistically, Airborne Corps never jammed in many guys up. Uh, it's not that hard. A uh, couple guys would get injured here and there. But more likely than not, they were going to graduate that. Um, RIP, on the other hand, it's <laughs> pretty tough. Yeah. Um, and only a small percentage of people entering RIP would actually complete that course. And so um, I was fortunate enough to make it through, and I was assigned to the 2nd Ranger Battalion in Fort Lewis, Washington. Awesome. Um, so just to give you more, I can go down a rabbit hole, Chief. Um, yeah. Basically, that's not it for you know your entry into the Ranger Regiment. Um, you still owe Ranger School, which is a part of the Ranger Standards, and it's a completely different course. It's a 62-day course, uh, you know, two months long, at least that long. It falls under the Big Army, actually, um, under the Maneuver Center of Excellence. Mm -hmm. um, but you need both to be fully in the uh, 70th Ranger Regiment. And so I actually uh, went to my unit after RIP, um, trained my squad and platoon, went to Ranger School, graduated that in May of 2001. Okay. And as you can imagine, 2001, right? So shortly thereafter, 9-11 uh, happened. Yeah. And so um, when that happened, we got real busy, obviously. <laughs> um, we were, the 2nd Ranger Battalion was the third of the three Ranger Battalions to deploy to the Operation During Freedom or the beginning of the Global War on Terror. Wow. Uh, 3rd Ranger Battalion jumped into Objective Rhino. 1st uh, Ranger Battalion followed them. And then we came after them uh, in 2002. And our primary uh, mission at that point was high-value target uh, captures for top guys. We were, everybody's looking for Milan at that time. We would go on those types of operations with our special missions unit counterparts. And uh, we'd also be quick reaction force for any kind of contact in theater. Yeah. So if you know there was a firefight somewhere, we would uh, get on the birds on the flight line and, and head out if, if things were going wrong for those guys. Um, my second trip was uh, in 2003 in Iraq. Uh, it was the invasion of Iraq. And... Um, that was the entire range regiment minus one uh, company, which was still in Afghanistan, went to that. We were pre-staged in RR Saudi Arabia, and then we went in. And if you remember back then when, when that kicked off, you were, you were going up against the Iraqi army. Mm -hmm. You know, the Fedayeen, the, uh, the uh, Republican Guard, you know, those types. 
And so we did those operations. I was a part of the rescue mission for Jessica Lynch, which was highly publicized, um, us and some Navy counterparts. But towards the end of that same deployment, we saw the beginning of the insurgency. Mm -hmm. And so our, our, one of our last operations was Objective Reindeer, where uh, Joint Special Operations Command actually had uh, targeted or pinpointed some uh, people training out in the Syrian border there, you know, uh, realized they weren't coalition forces and sent us in the night to go uh, take care of that. They ended up being mainly Chechens. Um, it was a really bad night for those guys. Um, <laughs> but that was the beginning of what we would, you know, end up fighting for years to come, which was the insurgency. Yeah. And then just to kind of, you know, tie the bow in it, did one more trip there uh, to Afghanistan, Operation Winter Strike, prior to getting out. Um, that basically entailed, it was weird, it was a one-month trip from almost day to day, which is unheard of. Most of our trips were three to four months already short compared to the regular Army. This one was one month, and the uh, premises of that operation was to go, uh, we took vehicles to the uh, foothills of the Himalayas, far as we could drive, and then it was what we had on our backs and our rifles, and we walked through the Himalayas for that month, going to village to village, and basically the primary mission was to uh, confiscate the ordinance we gave the Mujahideen and the Afghans back in the 80s when they were fighting the Russians, and the reason why it was these ordinances that they were using to kill Americans with IEDs. Yeah. And so we would get in, we'd surround the village. It was basically, they didn't put up a fight. We had interpreters and whatnot, and uh, we'd eventually get their, all their ordinance. We'd take our, our explosive breachers, we'd take them off outside the village there, uh, blow them in place, and then and we'd stay there for another couple of days because we also had some military uh, intelligence types that were running signal uh, intelligence type things. And they were, you know, when you get into a village, some are going to be, you know, friendly, some are not, and then they could target the Al-Qaeda from there. They'd go up in the mountains, and then we, you know, would go about business in that regard. Yeah. But uh, after that, uh, Chief, um, I was short-timing in the military. I think I had weeks left. Got back in the States, and in 2004, separated from active duty. Yeah. So that's, that's a little awesome. snapshot. So first and foremost on that, thank you for your service. Thank you, sir. All thank right. you, Chief. Um, the other thing I would like to relate to the audience specifically is – these are the quality men and women we have working for us. This Absolutely. is an example of, of the people that come and work for the U.S. Support Show. They uh, serve their country, many capacities. Special operations is one. We have all kinds. But um, to say that we take lightly here in the U.S. Border Patrol, and more specifically the U.S. Border Patrol Academy, uh, the value of the folks who have been willing to sacrifice their lives for our freedom uh, is an understatement. So thank you very much. No, thank you, Chief. And absolutely, you know, with that, it's so many similarities between uh, military service and what we do here. Yeah. You know, I mean, military is the first line of response, the first line of defense overseas at war. We are 100% the first line of defense here. And so those who are looking to come into this line of work from the military are going to find it's very similar. It's paramilitary. It's, uh, you know, it's a perfect fit. I felt like I was right back at home when yeah. I came in the Border Patrol. So. This is exactly why we were talking. Yes, sir. <laughs> um, so you leave the military and you go and pursue your education. Yes, Tell me a little bit about, about that. How did you get in, in, in pursuit of this, uh, this bachelor's degree, and where'd you go? Yeah, so backing up a little bit on that, in 2003 when I was in Iraq, uh, they assigned these two guys to our platoon. And uh, you looked at them, they were bearded out, they had <laughs> DCUs on, I thought they were operators. Uh, but they're like, no, those guys are FBI HRT. <laughs> so this is prior to the military having a robust sensitive site exploitation program and these guys would essentially go on target with us and once the dust settled these guys would you know collect evidence and exploit the site and uh, i always was interested in law enforcement particularly federal law enforcement and i look at these guys like you could be an agent 
And I know you can do things in the states and target, you know, bad guys and, you know, protect the country that way. Mm-hmm. But you can also go and integrate with soft and, you know, get in with these units. And, I and you know, they were never lead on anything per se. But if we were getting a chunk on the way in, those guys would be getting a chunk inadvertently as well. So uh, it sparked my interest. If I hadn't seen that, I probably would have stayed in and gone to one of the other special missions teams in the Army. But I liked what I saw, and that uh, caused me to separate, and I knew I needed a degree. So I went to Illinois State University, pursued a, a degree in business administration. Yeah. And uh, while I was going through that, uh, I went to career fair, and I saw these two guys in green. Being from Illinois, I'm from the actually the border of Iowa and Illinois and the Mississippi uh, 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 River there. And... Um, I never seen a PA, so I talked to the guys, and they started to engage with me about the job, and I was like, "Man, this sounds like right up my alley." Yeah. And then they got it, and I asked them, "Do you have a special missions team or special operations unit?" They're like, "Yeah, Bortac." Mm-hmm. And so I remember going back to my apartment that night and got on the computer and I searched, you know, Border Patrol and read up on Bortac. And so I actually applied on USA Jobs that night, yeah. and they called me uh, months later. Uh, I was about to go into my senior year, and they offered me a position, and I was like, "Now nah, I'm going to get my degree." Um, and so they said, well, I said, can I call back uh, when I finish? And like, you can try, but no guarantees. Okay. So I, I called them when I graduated, I graduated college, uh, December 06. I called them. I said, Hey, uh, can I come in? They're like, yeah, well, where do you want to go? And I, well, everything I read at that time online seemed like Bortec was in El Paso. So I said, El Paso. Yeah. They're like, we got Santa Teresa. I said, let's go. So one, one Oh seven, I, uh, EOD and you know, the rest of history. history. Excellent. So. Shameless plug, but I uh, just did a, a quick social media hit on uh, the investment the U.S. Border Patrol specifically is making on interior recruiters. So we have uh, interior recruiters, I believe, in 10 locations across the country. We focus not solely, but heavily uh, and on in and around military installations. Okay. So if you're, you know, in the military today and there's a career fair, look for the Border Patrol agent. Have them tell the story, maybe sign up. What's the worst that could, that could happen? You become a U.S. Border Patrol agent. Absolutely. Right? And, you know, you, it, it's funny because uh, I kind of took a different route. And I've said this before on the podcast, but my intention, I got it in 18, right? And my intention was to uh, come to the U.S. Border Patrol, gain that life experience, kind of like you did with the military. At the same time, go to college and then go seek out those three-letter organizations that I also wanted to do. Right. Probably much like you, as soon as I EOD... Uh, get back to my station. I kind of fall in love with the mission, kind of fall in love with the people. And, you know, much like the military, once you get that taste of that camaraderie and, you know, being, you know, arm in arm with your brother and sister in the middle of the night chasing bad guys, it's really hard to walk away from. Um, so you, you kind of flipped it. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> but so you go get your degree first. That's perfectly acceptable too. Um, again, another shameless plug is that the Customs and Border Protections generally uh, has invested in overall wellness of its people to include their professional and personal development. So we have things like the tuition assistance program. It's called TAP, right? And I believe the number, the value right now is about 5,500 bucks, more or less, 5,000, 5,500 that we will pay you to not only be a border patrol agent, but essentially give you free money to earn your degree at the same time. Outstanding. So the, the government has paid for my undergrad and my grad school. Wow. Right. Yeah. So again, two shameless plugs there, yeah. but, but you're kind of a, the epitome of one way to do it. Um, I represent the other way to do it. There's no right or wrong way. No, Just do it. No chief. And it's important to get the information out because yeah. we do have these programs that 100% uh, support our agents. And, uh, if you don't take advantage of it, you know, yeah. I tell trainees every day, it's free money, Yeah. you know, and you're, and you're developing yourself. Yeah. Maybe 
maybe along the way you become a, a Chris Voss or a Ryan Landrum. You're like, no, what? I think I'm going to stay after all. Right. You well, know, you may have any aspiration you want, but maybe you, maybe you get enough of the bug in your in your uh, system that, that you just stay. Roger that. Chief. Yeah, yeah. So, um, no doubt, you're going to go special ops. Right? right. That's why you got in this thing. Um, and, and by the way, uh, just to kind of clarify, yes, National uh, Special Operations Group is in El Paso. It's based in El Paso. That's where the, the, the one team, you're the patrol agent in charge of the group of BORTAC. Right. Um, and that is based in El Paso. But every sector, especially on the southwest border and even some northern border sectors, have a special operations detachment. Correct. So they kind of respond and work for the chief patrol agent of the sector. But they're also available should you need a national call out you can plug and play uh, from those operators as well but each sector kind of has their own team and you can kind of and correct me if i'm wrong weave in and out so you can be a, a uh, an operator in a, in a detachment mm-hmm. and then maybe go national yep. when you're done with that with that tour you can go back to a detachment no right chief you can bounce around in fact i did um and how it more or less plays out usually there's some exceptions but typically when you graduate selection you will go back to your sod in your sector okay and so you'll be part of the detachment and then after you operate there for a while get off probation because there's a probationary period mm-hmm. then you can put in if there's an opening at sog and be part of the national team so typically there are guys that have done their time at an sod mm-hmm. and what's in important about that i feel is every sod is a little bit different based upon their operational environment you got guys that are from rio grande valley that can track in almost anything amazing um guys in tucson they work the mountains you know what have you detroit they can do interagency stuff real well work in the cold um but they come to sog from all these different backgrounds so when we get called to these manhunts uh, you got these RGV guys that can track a person anywhere. Or if we end up working up in Detroit, you have guys that can plug into that operational environment and be that link to where we're deploying to. Because at SOG, we do not own territory or an operational environment. Um, we're not a part of a sector. In fact, that compound is considered a sector. We have a chief, Chief Timothy Sullivan. Yeah. Um, actually, you know who I'm filling in for right now, Marcus Cervantes. Uh, he's the actual PAC. He's now acting as the deputy chief. So we have all that leadership there on that compound. And so uh, we get requested in to work somewhere. So we have to be really good at plugging in Mm -hmm. and adapting quickly. And it helps when those guys are from those areas originally. Yeah. So quick shout out to to the the greater leadership team of SOG. I I don't think we've enjoyed uh, between Chief Sullivan, Deputy Munoz, Marco, um, you and others, the, the quality of leadership and the experience that you all bring to the table to uh, help develop personally and professionally the team members, whether it be the national team or, or the detachments, uh, it is absolutely outstanding right now. Um, the support requests that we have from the field, um, you guys do everything you possibly can to fill those things. And uh, from a chief's perspective, uh, could not be more appreciative of what you guys are doing there. We appreciate that, chief. Yeah. Yep. Um, so you, you talked a little bit about 1107, you EOD, STN, then you go over to BORTAC. I'm sorry, you then from there, two years later, you go into uh, what we call Border Patrol Surge and Trauma and Rescue. That's right. BORTAC. Yes, Chief. Um, obviously, you were probably destined for BORTAC in the end, but maybe BORTAC came up first and you just wanted to get there. That's more or less how it happened. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I was up for anything at that point. I love going to selections. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, <laughs> Glad uh, for punishment. Yeah. Sure. Right, right, right. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I remember getting uh, my two-year point there and I called the SOG actually I believe I think I talked to Marco Cervantes yeah, it's yeah. funny I remember his voice so and I, I inquired about Bortag Borsar and I asked if you do both and he said yeah I don't see why not so yeah. Borsar came up uh went through that uh, actually Jared Aspie your deputy yeah, was yeah. my classmate so oh wow uh great guy man tough guy so we went through I went through that 
but I always was aiming towards doing both and probably leaning towards Bortec, just my personal preference, but yeah. both are great teams. So I, I believe I graduated that in May of 09 and went through Bortec in June of 09 yeah. and just stayed on Bortec pretty much throughout the duration. Can you give me the 30-second uh, bluff on the difference? What, what's the difference between Bortec? Yeah, so, so primarily if you want to give an example for your listeners, especially if they have, uh, you know, are savvy with more military units, yeah. Borstar uh, is more like your, your pararescue jumpers of the Air Force. In fact, a buddy of mine that was in the range with me that got out and went National Guard uh, PJs, watched my class video, and the technical rope rescue and other things, he's like, man, that's almost right out of our doctrine. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and they're, they're amazing operators, uh, you know, um, but, yeah, they're, they're more tailored towards search and rescue. Yeah. Um, whereas BORTAC is your, your tactical option. So if you think military, again, um, any military soft direct action force, whether it's recon marines, Army Green Berets, Rangers, it's very similar to that. Um, we do, uh, again, direct action, which would be our warrant services, uh, uh, tactical tracking, interdictions on the border, um, you know, long-range reconnaissance, and we also do foreign uh, internal border security missions overseas. Yeah. So we're in a, a variety of countries, uh, the whole gamut. But uh, Yeah, my sense is probably as you guys mature um, in, in recent history and probably a little bit beyond that or before that as well, but probably operate together. We do. Yeah. And it's funny you bring that up, Chief, because historically uh, the teams more worked independently. Yeah. Um, but as a recent, we have been integrating. And so it's all a part of the natural progression and, and uh, basically finding that next you know, uh, way to differentiate yourself. Mm -hmm. um, so what we're going to now at SOG specifically is more into the targeting aspect. And so we have our SOG intelligence personnel. We integrate with them and Borstar to make this package now. Yep. And it's been uh, an exponential increase in, in uh, the result on our operations, mm. especially, you know, it's easy, not easy, but you can get almost any SWAT team or whatever, do a warrant service, not saying we do it right or wrong, you know, but they can execute it, probably rest the guys, because, you know, let's be honest, in in, uh, in law enforcement, the 1% is a shooting. Mm -hmm. And so uh, with that regard, you have a lot of teams that can do that, but can you find and fix? Yeah. And so we've taken it now to another level. We're now focusing on being able to do all. So through this integration, you'll have Bortec guys that are now so integrated with IU intelligence guys that they're now, you know, being able to assist in their duties. Likewise, the IU with some of the tactile things and, and Borstar and all the above. So yeah. it's increased the capacity and capabilities overall for SOG. Yeah, so you, brought, you bring up a really interesting point, uh, and this is a part of the maturation of SOG generally as well. Talk to me a little about the intelligence apparatus attached to SOG. So do you have to be an operator? What is it? Do you, can you be a border patrol agent and be attached to SOG for, uh, for intelligence? Yep. What is, how does it, how do, how do you use intelligence? Maybe, maybe there's some uh, intelligence folks like, hey, I'm not necessarily an operator, but I'm yep. really into, you know, intelligence for special ops. Yeah, you I do can. not have to be an operator chief. So Excellent. you can, sure. but you do not need to be. So basically you have to have somewhat of an intel background mm -hmm. to my understanding. Um, but it's, you know, pulling from the, the from the sectors. You know, and so you get to SOG, you'll be trained upon the particulars of how they do business, and then you'll deploy. But it is, you know, you have to be ready for that integration, and it's mm -hmm. fast paced. These guys are super busy. Mm -hmm. uh, they get requested all the time to a variety of stuff, Super Bowl, you know, you name it. These guys are being tasked out to include, you know, supporting the teams. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, yeah, absolutely don't have to be an operator. You just have to be prepared for that high pace. Yeah. Uh, type of operational environment. Yeah, we'll get into this a little bit later, but 
we're, we're kind of on this theme, especially as we approach this centennial, this, this idea that we're about to turn 100 as an organization, um, this, this theme of we were there. And there's a lot, we're, like I said, we're going to get into a little bit, but you brought up like the Super Bowl. People probably don't realize that we fill support requests for uh, major sporting events, um, yep. you know, obviously highly publicized riot type events as well. Right. Uh, and then throughout our history, we've, we've done some, some re- really incredible stuff too, but I'm excited to get to it. But let's, let's uh, move on to you. Obviously, again, March 2709, you, uh, you graduate Borstar. Basically move right into uh, selection course 26 for BORTAC. This is June 25th of 09. And you graduate that, obviously, and head over to the El Paso Sector BORTAC team, which is the BORTAC detachment for El Paso Sector that we talked about. And you do that from uh, June 09 to September 10. Right. How was that? It was good. So that was just kind of learning the job, right? Uh, We did... A lot of uh, augmentation online, um, long-range border reconnaissance, interdictions, you know, warrant services. So I, I spent a, a short time there, but shortly thereafter, uh, and if you remember, mm-hmm. back when, uh, you know, the agents all were uh, 11s, mm-hmm. I believe, and soups were 12s, um, back then, uh, SOG personnel were non-supervisory 12s. And yeah. so me and uh, a partner on, he's actually a patrol agent in charge in Ogallis, Eddie Cantu. Mm-hmm. We both, for a short period of time, uh, promoted to non-supervisory 12 for like a month or two, and then everybody got it. So we're yeah. like, you know, it was bittersweet. It was yeah. cool, kind of, for a minute. But uh, yeah. at any rate, uh, we came to SOG there together yeah. in, uh, in 2010. Yeah. Right. I mean, this is kind of a, a really a recruitment-focused conversation, but that's, that's a great point. I mean, you talk about the maturation of an organization. Uh, t- Ten short years ago, going up 12, 13 years ago now, uh, the highest level you could achieve as a border patrol agent was a GS-11, right? Right. Now you're guaranteed a GS-12. That's a $100,000 plus job in less than three years from entering on duty here at the U.S. Border Patrol Academy. Three years from then, you're a GS-12 making $100,000 plus. Absolutely. And in many of the locations that we go to uh, making that kind of money, despite the economic situation of the, of the country today, uh, wherever you land on that, uh, still... Damn good pay. You're doing good. Yeah. It goes a long way. Yeah, it does. Um, so then <clears throat> you go back over to SOG and go join the National Board Tag Team. This is 2010. You served there till 2014. Uh, I'm guessing you participate in quite a few uh, opportunities there, a lot of quite a few missions that I want to get to kind of at the end. Sure. But it's uh, my guess is there's some stuff there. Um, after that, you go, you now you, we talked about the GS-12, right? So right. we have the, we, we, we affectionately term it the across the board 12. Right. So everybody was uh, journeyman level GS-12. So in order to promote to the next step, that's a first line supervisor. Now that's a GS-13, a little bit more money, right? right? right. Um, you take that, you take on that and a little more responsibility too. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. You take on the job of the national mobile response team program. So under the, under the umbrella of SOG, traditionally you had you know, kind of legacy SRT that kind of started the whole thing. Right. And then you go in, you know, develop the BORTAC team. That's one part of SOG. Um, the BORSTAR team is another part of SOG, but it sounds here like there's a third part of SOG at the time called the mobile response team. There What's is. that about? And I believe you, Chief, uh, we're instrumental in that with mm-hmm. uh, a former chief that we had in the Border Patrol yeah. as well. So um, basically mobile response team, the idea, the concept behind it was there are certain operations that may not require BORTAC or BORSTAR. And uh, at the same time, you know, you need a mobile force that can deploy rapidly uh, to a location, right? And so they stood up this mobile response team concept, or MRT, and what it essentially was was you would come to SOG, you go through a, a two-week selection, you get enhanced capabilities or training in tactics, 
medical type training as well. And then you'd be equipped with extra equipment, right? Mm -hmm. And basically agree that you would, you know, uh, be available for deployments if they came up, more or less. And so this gave the Border Patrol a maneuver element um, that really uh, fit the need that we needed at the time to uh, that, that specific niche. And so it's it's developed over the years. I, I'd be uh, lying if I knew what attrition course we're on now, but they're instrumental. We see those guys on operations. They support some Bortex stuff. We saw them in the riots in Portland. And uh, it's funny, they were a key part of Portland yeah. because they provided us uh, some elements of battlefield deception that played into uh, our hand. So mm -hmm. they're, they're a great team and they're an option for agents. And, and I'll, I'll be honest, several people going to MRT and they kind of get exposed to some of the teams like Bortec and Borsar, and then they later try out and make it. So yeah. it's, a, it's a big thing for the, for the board. So a few less qualifications, not, not as rigorous maybe as a selection course for Borsar and Bortec. Um, uh, let's not you know, make any bones about it. Those, those selection courses uh, are not easy. Nor should they be. I mean, the, the, the levels of support that you have to provide uh, on the national and quite honestly, a global scale, um, at least hemispheric anyway, right. um, require uh, that you be squared away Correct. and ready, right? Absolutely. Um, and, and by the way, it's a commitment. Right, that being on, on one of these teams is an absolute commitment. Um, MRT allowed you almost the best of both worlds. So you got some enhanced training, some enhanced gear, but you also could just be a board patrol agent too. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of guys like doing that. I mean, I know several guys that love their sector, love yeah. what they do, and you know, if that's the case, you can do this thing and kind of play a little bit, but go back to what you love. Yeah, you know? awesome. Yeah. Um, so you do that for about four years, and then you go to uh, supervisory board treasure team lead uh, for SOG National, and this is November of 2014, and you do that for about a year. Right. And this this is just a, a lateral move from MRT back into uh, Bortec proper. Correct. It's the same compound. It just, yeah. you know, you jump right back to the uh, team room there. Right. Absolutely. So the interesting part is... <clears throat> I think also there's potentially a stigma and over time, and, and, and keep in mind, how old is Bortac? Well, we started in 1984. 1984. Right. But the modern day Bortac, as we, as we enjoy it today. You know, um, yeah, so it started out more or less like a, a, a responding to uh, riots and whatnot, um, right. but it, it evolved over the years, I'd say maybe within the last 10. Yeah. You know, or so. It's Let's call it the development of SOG. There you go. Right. So when we actually kind of combine, make this national team, and and, and separate from the from the detachment only kind of uh, model, and we have you know maintain that model, but also add this national team, um, it's really really taken off, and and you can you can do a career there, and that is great, yep. right? If that's what you want to do, and that's you know you want to just kind of continue on with that thing you started in the military and, and do be an operator for the rest of your career, that's cool. But there's also opportunities within SOG yep. to promote. Absolutely. Right? So you, it's not, you're not a one-trick pony necessarily. And, and we see it time and time again where um, folks that are associated or, or tabbed with Borstar and Bortac kind of do that life for a bit. Mm -hmm. And then they maybe come out, go into, back to Border Patrol proper, if you will, right. and ascend that way as well. Right. Right? So for context, right, the chief patrol agent of SOG, mm -hmm. Timmy Sullivan, is a GS-15. Correct. That's about as high as you can get, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, Next level from there is a senior executive service. And quite frankly, you know, of the 19,000 plus border patrol agents, there's only about 25 of us. Yep. So getting to that very, very top tier of leadership, um, number one, the, the, the numbers are against you, yep. right, for most people. Um, and then secondly, 
there's a ton of stuff to do below that level, right? right? And lead people and still be operators. Absolutely. Right? So that's, that's, a, that's a great selling point. It's, I don't think you don't get single, single scoped, uh, maybe like the stigma used to be. Right. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and obviously your path is a great illustration of that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, so then you go in and you're, you're selected as a CP liaison, acting assistant chief patrol agent, uh, with the U.S. Military Special Operation Command in Southcom in Miami, Florida. Speaking of, we were there and how we train and who we operate with, mm-hmm. who we learn from as well. Um, you go over to Southcom and tell me about that assignment. That's that sounds pretty interesting. Yeah, it was interesting. So uh, I'll tell you this: I was the first one. Uh, Carl McClafferty uh, called me up and he's like, "Hey, would you be interested?" And I said, "Yes, I would." Yes, so, I would. so we uh, I went down there and uh, my only uh, mission, I, if you will, was to. Uh, get an office and a desk and a computer for the guy that was going to come in and be the, the full-time guy because yeah. I was just a long-term detail. Yeah. So I remember getting to Sock South and I was on the J3 floor and I walked right into the, one of the best offices with computer, nipper, sipper, all the access I needed. I'm like, man, you know, job's done, you know. So uh, I had my uh, FBI counterpart. He was on the office next to me and I just started plugging in where, where I got in, where I fit in out there. I end up... Uh, becoming partners and friends with one of the uh, commanders there. He was a former Navy SEAL Team 6 commander, and uh, he was head of the J-5. Okay. And he was a, a sharp guy, man, and he understood everything's borders. And what they wanted to find was, you know, if there's any terrorists uh, using the traditional alien smuggling routes to come up to the country. And so yeah. we partnered up, and <clears throat> I went all over. I mean, went to Colombia, Panama, you name it, I went. And uh, the efforts were focused basically on that. Uh, yeah. So it, it was a good experience. Uh, I got to see the military from the higher command level. So like the average officer there was like a major, yeah. most were full bird colonels and just some of the smartest guys you'll ever <laughs> interact with. Yeah. It was a huge floor. You dared, dared to stand up and yeah. speak unless you <laughs> knew exactly what you were talking about because yeah. there was no time for nothing else. Yeah. So it was a great experience, learned a lot. Um, and uh, yeah, but there's truly, that uh, that dual line of effort that we have with SOC cell specifically, because we'd be on these ranges in Central South America, and you'd see an ODASF team training a partner for us, and we're on the range next to them. And so we did the same stuff. They just called it FID, yeah. you know, for internal defense. We call it affordable security, but we do the same things. Yeah. We have a little more authorities in these countries because as opposed to the, the military, they can only come within so much proximity to an actual operation going down, right. whereas federal agents can go all the way up on the X and advise. Yeah. And so it is a good partnership. It's what we said we would do after 9-11. We said we would talk. We said we would all get together and, and work together, and that was one of the efforts that the U.S. Border Patrol is doing to adhere to that. Yeah, a couple things on that. So to your point, I didn't grow up in a military family, but I did go to the U.S. Army War College, and um, it was then I kind of talked about my, my – uh, my respect for those who are willing to, to give their lives for our freedom really was born out of that experience. And the, to your point, the quality of officer generally that uh, I encountered in that environment uh, could not have come away more, more impressed. Oh, yeah. Just some smart individuals, uh, highly decorated, highly educated um, tacticians. And in this, in these times, these are, these are tact- the practitioners of war. Absolutely. These are not, um, you know, theorists, 
uh, you know, and, and historians. These are folks that have said, hey, we read this book, but we did this other stuff. And some of this stuff doesn't jive. Let me tell you about it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it just, just the, the amazing every day to your point. Like I remember going to class every day and like, I don't think I should be here. Like, I don't think I fit in this room, <laughs> you know, but, and, and you but know, you learn to, you learn to adapt and you, you know, you assimilate and, uh, and you go from there and you add your experience because it's equally valuable. Uh, the second point, which leads me into the second point anyway, is you kind of mentioned like you're the first line of defense of the homeland, hmm. right? Absolutely. So you're, you're kind of carrying on this, uh, this, uh, mission set that you adopted in, in the military. Um, and also to your point, the, how we have, expanded our borders. So I argue often that if we're fighting illegal immigration or terrorism or whatever, insert whatever uh, thing you're trying to combat at our borders, we've already lost. Too late. We've lost. Too late. Right? So the amount, you know, this is also a piece of recruitment, right? If, if you think all you do is sit on an X in Nogales, downtown Nogales with the U.S. Border Patrol, it's not true. You right. can. Right. Absolutely. You can make a career of that. But there's, we have international affairs. SOG goes all over the damn place. Um, it, is, it is absolutely pushing boundaries with trying to make sure that the men and women uh, in America can sleep comfortably at night under a blanket of freedom. And we do a good job of it. We extend our borders, like you said, Chief, and we throw these nets up. Yeah. And the more you cast, the more it's going to filter in. There's all kinds of things, high-end stuff, that we probably yeah, yeah. can't talk about on this podcast. Sure. But, you know, and it's an arduous task. It's, it's, it's a, you know, insurmountable task of... Find someone somewhere, mm -hmm. you know, on the expansive border that we have. We were great at it. We're the best in the world at it, but it's tough. And we're smart enough to know we've got to throw those nets out downrange mm -hmm. and do the best we can because the country counts on it. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's also why you're here. It's what keeps you here. Absolutely. Right? So Absolutely. going back, you could have gone to SOG, mm -hmm. right? Circling back to that piece. You could have gone to Borstar, Bortag, operated, and you still could have gone to FBI. Right. right. Why not? Well, why I, I fell in love with the job. You know, I... I uh, once I, you know, especially for me, the fit was the teams, not saying it's for everybody. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, we got intelligence. You can handle canines, horse patrol, you know, ATVs, whatever. For me, it was this. And once I got in, I, I fell in love with it. And yeah. I, I'll never, I'll never leave. I love yeah. it. Yeah, awesome. So um, you then go and try your hand at the northern border. Yes. Sounds like you become the uh, first patrol unit in charge of the newly created and established Detroit Sector Special Operations Attachment. I remember this very well as well. Um it was uh, on the northern border. I'll, I'll let you go into a little bit, but we didn't necessarily have kind of uh, any cohesive team. And we, I think at the time we were trying to maybe regionalize just a little bit uh, right. to enhance that capability. So tell me about the first uh, PIC job of Detroit. Yeah, you're right, Chief. So it was ad hoc at, at nature. There was guys up there. They were doing great work. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it was fully set up and funded, you know, when I got up there. And, uh, yeah, so we, we had a five-man team originally. Mm -hmm. uh, and we built it up to 15, which is good for the northern border. We were the only full-time team at that That's time, right. That's right. Uh, and that was due to the chief, uh, Harrison, at the time. Mm -hmm. So um, everything up there is interagency. It's just a different animal. So, you know, uh, for guys that spent most of the career on the southern border, it is a different animal, yeah. and you have to learn quickly on how and where you get in and fit in. But uh, it's absolutely critical to the border security mission and just the defense of the country mission because more often than not, some of these non-traditional taskings we get, like manhunts, mm -hmm. uh, are, are up on the northern border. And so now we have these SODs, uh, New York, for example, Swanton Sector, and, and the one we're talking about in a little bit here, yeah. uh, those guys are already there. They knew the operational environment. They were huge. And so having these uh, units strategically placed throughout the country um, is huge for our capabilities, especially deployability, and get, get on the ground quick, 
get oriented and move out on what we're, we're targeting. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it, it's amazing. And, and, and as I talk to you about this, it, it kind of brings me back also to the fact that you've been all over the world doing all cor- sorts of special operations stuff, but now within the border patrol, now you've operated on all three borders. Right. Right. So it's, again, you can be a, you know, an agent on, in Nogales and, and there's no problem with that. No, by the way, Nogales is a great station. Um, it's a great station. Um, so, you know, people are like, oh man, Nogales. I'm like, no, you're one of the lucky ones. It is a fantastic station. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, but you also had the opportunity to go, you start in El Paso, you kind of base out of there a little bit. You're operating South Florida for a little while. Then now you're leading people on the Northern border. You're kind of trying your hands at different things in right. these leadership roles. Right. Um, so it's really, uh, commendable to watch. The other thing is now you go in and you sounds like you kind of transitioned back to big border patrol for a minute. I did. Yeah. I why? Did. So truth be told, yeah. uh, wife's from El Paso, <laughs> you know, and I'm from this Illinois. story plays out a lot, by the way. <laughs> so I'm from Illinois, mm-hmm. you know, and so this is the closest I could be to my family in Illinois. still an eight hour drive. Yeah. So might as well be another country. <laughs> but, uh, that being said, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time in El Paso and I got to really like it. And, uh, mm-hmm. she's from there. So a couple winters and she's like, Hey, you know, it's pretty cold up here. Like, <laughs> yeah. So I started looking around. I, I always, you know, SOG has always been my home yeah. You know, I always want to get back there, but I looked around, there wasn't too many openings there. And I saw this Sarah Blanca thing and I thought, you know what? I, I, I did two years on the border at the station. Yeah. I didn't do horse patrol. I did a lot of things. And kind of regretted some of that. Mm-hmm. Wish I would have spent a little more time there. I was in such a hurry. And I think that was more to do with I, I was fresh out of the Army and the things I was doing there that I didn't just stop and take a breath and look mm-hmm. at other things and opportunities. So I thought this could be cool. Mm-hmm. Going back to the uh, to the, to the the uh, uh, station, you know, there and then see where I fit in. And, and honestly, a big gap in the things I knew about the board patrol was at the station. And yeah. I knew I would learn quickly mm-hmm. uh, as a watch commander. Um, so I uh, put in and, and got accepted uh uh, down there in uh, Sierra Blanca. And yeah. uh, it was interesting. There's a lot I didn't know. And one of the impressive things I saw was just the caliber of agents at that station is amazing. Like yeah. those guys are on point with all the above processing. Like honestly, um, if it weren't for my, my agents and my soups, you know, who knows what would happened to me because <laughs> I, I really didn't have a lot of experience in that. And I, I gained it quickly. Yeah. Um, and then the checkpoint. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't even know what a LPR was at that time. You know, I remember... The Pat, Gray, Mr. Grahada at the time was like LPR, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, Roger, you know, and I'm like Googling what LPR is, you know, and I'm like, oh, license plate reader, you know, yeah. something as basic as that. I was like, I had no idea. Yeah. Um, so, anyway, it's funny, but uh, I learned a lot, and uh, it was a great experience. I wouldn't change it for the world, um, mm-hmm. that that opportunity. Yeah, it, it, it also uh, gives you a little more street cred when you do go out and, and have to operate in an AOR that right. you're unfamiliar with, and you're this, you know, oh, well, Vortex coming in. You know, right, like you, right. you kind of like, yeah, you know, you, you may, maybe you treat the, the agents with just a little bit differently because yeah. you now have walked a mile in their shoes figuratively yeah. and literally, yeah. right? So you Obviously. know what they're up against too. And you, Hey, I'm here to help, not here to, you know, violently take over something. Well, we, we need those guys 100%. <laughs> yeah. So. Not everybody can be in SOG, right? No. I mean, our, our bread and butter, quite frankly, is made with Border Patrol agents. Right. Uh, doing the, doing the work of Border Patrol agents. Absolutely. Right. Um, and Sierra Blanca is a pretty darn good station as well. It's right there next to El Paso. You can commute there every single day. Absolutely. Um, that, that checkpoint. I, I, I always uh, really, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a checkpoint guy. I love checkpoint. Um, but the, the amount of 
things that they encounter mm. on a daily basis um, to include things like dealing with the public. Yeah. That's a whole other, like we operate in the, in, you know, kind of in the darkness in the middle of, you know, the boot hill of New Mexico, mostly yep. don't see many folks other than the ranchers and the bad guys. Right. Right. Or, or the migrant who needs our help. Mm. Right. So if you have to spend, you know, eight, eight to 10 hours a day, basically doing hundreds of traffic stops every single day, yep. you learn a different skill. Oh, you do. You can right. just walk into it, you know, and they call it the you know, Hollywood checkpoint. Because they, yeah, that's you know, right. I'm counting all these celebrities going through there and then the general public. And, you know, you've seen videos on, on YouTube on that. So those agents got to be on point. They got to know yeah. what they do, why they do it. Yeah. And they're great. Yeah. I mean, so Sierra Blanca, for those that don't know, is uh, one of our most highly volume tra traffic checkpoints uh, on I-10 eastbound out of El Paso. So if you're going anywhere on the you know southwest border, you can basically take I-10 left to right, right to left. Yep. Um, so the volume of people that go through there, A, is really, really high. And the uh, those with uh, extreme notoriety also is pretty they high. Do. Comes out of nowhere. They're like, yeah. what is this? Ooh. And yeah. then they realize, right? Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. So <clears throat> anyway, yep. there's that. Um, so after uh, after Big Ben, you're a watchman of the GS-14 now. So now you ascend up to this GS-14 level. So you've right. gone all the way from, where did you come in as a seven? I came in as a seven. Seven. Yes. GS-7 all the way to, uh, to a uh, 14. Right. Um, returned to national team, uh, national board tech team in 2019 as a uh, SOS, super, uh, Special Operations Supervisor, right. and have been an acting watch commander f uh, from there. For most of the time, right. Uh, Chief Sullivan was gracious enough to have me back. And again, like I said earlier, you know, my home has always been there. That's mm -hmm. where I felt like I truly fit. You know, mm -hmm. not everybody fits there, nor, they, nor should they. Mm -hmm. um, you yeah. know, you need every single facet of the board patrol to be successful. And I'm, I'm grateful for those people that fill those other roles. Just, you know, that that's mine. And so, uh, yeah, I, I was gracious enough to get back and, uh, you know, never look back so far. We'll see. You know, I'm, I'm, I don't intend to go anywhere yet, but, you know, we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll cross those bridges when they come. A lot of times, uh, you know, and, I, and I'm sensitive to this too, uh, your intentions and what the organization would like you to do sometimes don't come together. You know that better anybody. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, so anyway, we're going into uh, kind of it kind of rounds out your your experience, and I definitely appreciate that. That's a uh, that's very very helpful for not only me but the audience as well. Um, but I want to talk a little bit to to the extent that you that you can about some of the operations you may have uh, been a part of sure. as a as a member of special ops in right. Border Patrol. Yeah, so I'll talk about the. Uh, the more high profile that maybe your listeners can relate to. Um, yeah. So I, I would say the first more high profile operation I, I participated in would be the response to the Brian Terry shooting yeah. in, in Tucson in, in 2010. Mm -hmm. And so I uh, did that uh, right after that or shortly thereafter was the manhunt. The first of the big manhunts was in Pikes County, Pennsylvania for Eric Frayne. If you remember, he was the survivalist that shot and killed that state trooper and then absconded into the wood line. Um, we, we were on that one, and actually the Marshall Special Operations Group guys uh, apprehended him. Yeah. So there was that, and then shortly after, or not shortly after, but oh, well, a good time after that was a significant one that happened in El Paso, Texas recently, and that was Operation Spartan Juniper. Yeah. And uh, that one was a warrant service on the northeast there in El Paso, and during the course of that operation, one of our PK-9s, Boulder, was yeah. shot and killed. Yeah. And so real significant, our agents were able to uh, put the subject down. Um, but we did lose a dog. And if you think about it, in the 1% law enforcement scenario, as unfortunate as it is, that dog took that bullet, so we all walked home that, that yeah. day. No. And so in that regard, it was an absolute win. Yeah. Um, 
And then uh, after that, let's see, was the Portland riots. Yeah. Uh, that was a, a crazy uh, times there at the courthouse. And then we'll talk about the Richard Matt Davis Sweat thing as well. Yeah. Those are the big ones. Yeah, the the uh, Brian Terry is obviously a big one. Um, yeah. We we uh, never want to lose a border patrol agent, um, and to to lose border patrol agents in that in any manner is bad. Right. But this was a kind of a a big shock to us yes. at the time. It was right? absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So uh, you know Brian Terry was killed um, by some bandits yeah. uh, in just on the north side of uh, Nogales. Correct. Right. Yeah, and to my understanding, just. One of those things that happens, you know, I mean, it was just one of those shots and it was what it was. And uh, a lot of lessons learned as, as if anything, you know, uh, any operation you do, nothing's perfect, yeah. you know, uh, you know, and, and that's what I think humbles guys that are in my line of work because, you know, it's not pretty, mm -hmm. but you get the job done to accomplish mission. Yeah. And so, you know, the guys out there, people, military or even law enforcement officers that have been in, you know, the 1% scenario, right, that we encounter know that, you know, nothing works out exactly right. Uh, we put ourselves in line every, every time we put on the uniform yeah. and, uh, you know, when it does, uh, you know, at least we have our teammates there with us. Yeah. And in, in the case of Brian Terry, overwhelming response from all federal partners. I mean, we hit that area hard operation samurai and made a statement and then eventually they end up getting, I think most of the guys that, yeah. that, uh, participate in that. I don't, I don't know if there's anybody outstanding on, uh, justice for that do you are you aware i believe they got everybody yeah they've yeah. got everybody and i think they've all been sentenced yeah. um so equally we will never rest we Correct. never forget never ever forget. and we will never rest until justice is served absolutely it doesn't bring back brian no but uh it's the least we can do for his sacrifice absolutely right um and the PK-91, uh, yeah. PK-9 stands for Patrol K-9. This is a, a, a relatively new uh, program. We obviously have, uh, again, our bread and butter is um, detection K-9. Right. So detection of concealed humans and uh, narcotics. Mm -hmm. uh, secondary to concealed humans, we obviously primarily concern ourselves with uh, the concealment of humans and detecting those folks. Uh, but also they uh, are darn good drug dogs too. Yep. Um, but SOG also has uh, patrol canines. And in this particular uh, incident, I think you guys were basically serving a warrant. We were. Yeah, yeah it was a warrant on Northeast El Paso. Yep. It was an ATF warrant going after a uh, illegal weapons manufacturer. Yep. And so, uh, yeah, um, more or less, we got on the target there. Uh, we had a, a front side uh, primary entry team, which my, my teammate, Nick Heinze, was a team leader. I was a team leader in the, in the backside mm -hmm. uh, secondary entry. And uh, as this warrant went down, uh, the subject didn't come out right away. And we could see him from the backside of the, mm -hmm. the structure. We could view him through a sliding glass uh, windows and, a and some screens back there. And he was doing some things, not coming out right away. Saw him and his daughter. And then uh, one of our operators, uh, uh, Sal Navarro, saw him, what he thought, retrieve a pistol and put it out of the radio. And regardless, uh, we pre-planned in this operation that at a certain point, if he didn't come out, I was going to deploy an airburst scene LDV or flashbang. Mm -hmm. And the idea behind that was if he was going to do something really, really bad, like set up for a fight for the guys in the front, which he was. Right. He was positioning rifles for, for a showdown with the guys up front. But this would hopefully get into his, his head, and I believe it 100% played into our hand because when we deployed that airburst flashbang, he immediately, knee-jerk reaction, went to the back had an exchange of words with our operators in the back, and then he voiced that he was going to go back in. Mm -hmm. And our PK-9 handler, Daniel Alba, said, no, he sent the dog on a bite. Once the dog on a bite, he pulled the pistol out of his, his uh, pants there, shot the dog, and then started shooting at operators. Yeah. They returned fire, put him down, 
but at that point the dog already was yeah. was you know fatally shot and eventually succumbed to his injuries yeah. so again you know it's 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 a sad story but it, it is a win because that dog did what it was designed to do 100 percent, saved lives and we're forever grateful for that dog 100 percent. you know the guys honor him yearly on the anniversary with the wad as do most military people so yeah. wad um, is a uh, workout of the day yep. right so crossfitty basically uh embrace the suck yes right make it hurt Absolutely. but uh it's minimal compared to the uh, sacrifice that not only folks like brian terry which we have a wad for brian right, right? and then uh, the wad for the for the pk9 yes sir right um and then there's a kind of a, a, a bigger uh, operation that, that we were a part of. And, and by the way, like this is this is all of the country, right? So we get support requests. You're talking about um, Pennsylvania, uh, talking about El Paso. That's kind of in our backyard. No big deal there, obviously. But then we uh, get called out to New York for two escaped uh, fugitives from a prison. Right. Um, Richard Matt and David Sweat and and you and other team members were instrumental in in uh, protecting those communities that were being. Uh, terrorized and victimized by the thought of two escaped convicts <laughs> being yeah. murderers, yeah. being out on the loose in, in their in their communities. Um, and again, like I said, uh, you and others were were instrumental in not only locating him but um, terminating the threat. Right. Right. And I don't want to get too much into the who's and the what's and the and the hows uh, necessarily, but it does bring to mind to me that probably our viewers haven't even heard that we were there. Sure. Right. Yeah. Obviously, they know we were Brian Terry. They haven't probably heard about the El Paso incident. They might not have known we were in uh, Pennsylvania and maybe they knew we were in New York. Right. right? right. But maybe talk to me a little bit about this commitment to silent professionalism as an operator. Right. And I would say it is a commitment, but it's also something that just happens when you're a part of things that mm -hmm. go down. Yeah. And I'll, I'll be honest, you know, from the things that I've experienced in my life. Uh, all, all it's done is humble me, you know, because it's not perfect. Yeah. You know, I don't care what you respond to. It's it's the situation in New York. It's Evaldi. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're in that 1% situation, you know, which everybody's going to look back and judge, you, you know, you're on the X, you're making the calls. It's not perfect, but we're a team and we get the job done. And so those things are humbling. And so I think a lot of that quiet professionalism is just knowing that, you know what, I'm a dude, you know, yeah, I, I've been through some things. So it's a lot of people, but... I'm, I'm going to be there with my teammates. I'm going to get the job done no matter what, yeah. you know, so. We could spend a whole podcast talking about stories about the SOG operators being silent professionals, but I'll give you two from this weekend, right? We have a, and, and by the way, both of these individuals are Border Patrol agents. They uh, have graduated the Border Patrol Academy here in Artesia, New Mexico in the last six months or more or less. One individual is assigned to a station uh, in South Texas. He's visiting home down in deep South Texas, and he intervenes off-duty at a local shopping center uh, where a, a civilian female was being uh, carjacked at gunpoint. Wow. Okay? And the agent who was carrying his weapon off-duty intervenes, risks his life for that, for that female. Uh, I think the vehicle was ultimately stolen by the bad guys, but guess what? the female's alive. Yeah. Right. Cars are replaceable. Yeah. Right. So that's one example of a story that I'm happy to tell. Uh, while the people who are just executing these duties daily, because it's, it's who we are, it's ingrained in who we are. Right. Won't talk about it. And right. quite frankly, we don't want to. Most right? of the guys that walk that path, they don't got to talk yeah. about it. We had another, uh, uh, recently graduated, uh, trainee from the Academy out in Ajo who encountered a mother, of a migrant baby 
in the middle of desert Naho, and the baby was deceased. Mm. Right. So this trainee employs her uh, training because we have a scenario designed just for this. At the scenario-based training here at the Portugal Academy, we have a scenario designed just for this. Wow. She immediately performs CPR on the baby and revives it. That's amazing. Silent professionals, but yeah. we, are, we were there. Yeah. No, those are all standing stories. And, you know, again, people that are, are legitimately doing those things, they have no, they have no reason to, to yeah. miss it. So when I say you can be a SOG operator and, and do tremendous things, you can also be a board patrol agent and do tremendous things, 100%. you know, and you can do them in places like Ajo, Arizona or Brownsville, Texas. It doesn't matter. Just join. Right. Right. Absolutely. So <clears throat> this brings me to the point of the, of the podcast, uh, where I like to remind everybody that we are in the what's important now podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I led in to, to begin with, there's nothing more important to me. Uh, as it relates to the bigger picture, if you will, then making sure we have long-term strength of staffing for the U.S. Border Patrol so we can continue to do missions between Ajo and San Diego and Florida and New York and Pennsylvania and Spokane, Washington. We need people to do that. We need people to save lives and protect our communities, right, and enforce our immigration laws. That's important to me right now. Right, which is why you're here. But I also want to turn the table over to you, the mic over to you, and maybe get your thoughts, two or three things that are really, really important to you now from where you sit. Yeah, so specifically, Sullivan, I can tell you right now, it's the same thing with Marcus Fontes and Chief Sullivan. Um, it's for the team's it's capabilities, yeah. deployabilities, and integration. Yeah. And so we constantly have to push the envelope on you know, our tactics, our marksmanship, our medical, all the things that allow us to accomplish the mission, the integration that we're doing with our teams, right? Um, the SOG package, if you will. Uh, deployability, you know, you can be the greatest operator in the world, but if you can't get from A to B, what good is it? Yeah. And so, you know, we're always heightening our, our readiness posture and enabling ourselves to get quickly to where we need to get to protect America. And then integration is probably the biggest, one of the biggest things for, for SOG, not just integration at SOG with the other components at SOG, but integration with our sectors, integration with other agencies, because more often than not, we're hand in hand with these people. And if you can't integrate effectively, then you're not gonna be able to accomplish the mission. It doesn't matter how good you are, how quickly you get there. If you don't have that third component, yeah. then then what good are you? So those are three top priorities that we're constantly pushing at SOG, uh, just to make ourselves better and, and fit the, the small niche amongst the bigger picture within the U.S. Border Patrol. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, I can't think of a better place to end our conversation um, other than to say again, thank you for your service. Um, It is on behalf of myself and the entire Academy staff, thank you. Uh, Thank you for your continued service. Uh, Thank you to uh, the teammates and leadership at SOG and frankly, every Border Patrol agent out there, right? Um, If this is something that interests you, um, obviously, Special operation groups is a high interest uh, pull for recruitment for us. And uh, I can't think of a, a better agent to talk to. And I, and I say that very specifically. You're a Border Patrol agent first. Oh, I appreciate right. you. It's been an honor to be on this podcast. Yeah. Thank you much. So with that, honor first.